Coming up on today's show, the Métis Settlement's General Counsel has filed a claim against the government of Alberta in an effort to stop the implementation of Bill 57. We'll get the details surrounding that story. Also, border workers have voted to strike as of August 6th. And Joe Biden's tougher Buy American rules are really causing some concern among Canadian business owners. There's a huge amount of infrastructure spending being announced, and Canadians are feeling like they may be shut out. The Métis Settlements General Counsel announced that they had filed a claim against the government of Alberta to stop the implementation of Bill 57, which is an amendment to the Métis Settlements Act. So, to get some clarity around what's going on on this file and what we expect to see happen, we are going to chat now with Herb Lair, who is president of the Métis Settlements of Alberta. Mr. Lair, thank you for your time. I appreciate you calling us this morning. Thank you very much, Shay. It's nice to talk to you. It's, it's our pleasure to to educate all Albertans as to what it is that we have issues with under Bill 57. That's exactly what I want to do today. So why don't we start with Bill 57 itself? Let everybody know what it says, what it does, and what the issues are. There's a a multitude of things in this bill, so to go through them all would take quite a while. But the real, the the crux of the matter is, is it's attacking the governance of the the eight Métis settlements and the central uh, government of them as well. So this legislation is prescriptive to us. It tells us how many councillors you you can have, or it, it, let me correct myself, Mm -hmm. it it gives the councils the ability, which they always had, to go down to three or five. But if they don't make a motion to that or a bylaw to that, then, of course, it goes to the three, now, that, which is fine. That's There's not a, a, a big issue with that because that is just a maneuvering thing that you can and can't do. However, they were very prescriptive when it comes to our collective government where we have what's called a general council and and you have an executive of that. And that executive includes a president, a vice president, a secretary, and a treasurer. The the province has now said you can only have one or two of those positions. There's no choice in that. That's very prescriptive. Okay. Um, Why? I mean, if if they're saying that you have the right to your own framework in terms of governance, why do they care what it looks like? Yeah, well, that, that's that's part of the big question. Um, and they look at it and they say, oh, well, you're, you don't have very much finances left available to you. But let, let me make this point first, Shay. Mm-hmm. The governance of the eight Métis settlements is paid for by the eight Métis settlements. It comes up, it came out of our uh, a company that we had called Resco, that there was $90 million that we had made a profit. And as well, it came out of our future fund. So we are self-paying our own government. So now you have someone come in and say, nope, I don't uh, agree with this. I don't like the way it is. So therefore, uh, you know, I'm going to unilaterally change it. Okay, you say unilaterally. Was there any consultation with, with the Métis settlements or is this something the government did entirely on their own? No, 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 no. So there was some consultation. I'm, you know, there, there was some discussion over some of the changes but all of the changes that came forward in Bill 57, some of them we, we didn't know about. We didn't receive any notice of it. We were as surprised as the rest of Alberta was surprised to, to see the changes. Some of the issues we had talked about. But we the, the thing that we spent the most time on was developing a procedure, an actual document that talked about how we would proceed with this. 
in that document, it talks about going to our membership in the end, either in having either a plebiscite or a referendum, to ensure that we were doing things that the majority of the people wanted. And, and that, to me, is true democracy. So we ha- it never got to that point. The, because of COVID, all of a sudden we couldn't have our general meetings in the communities because of Alberta health orders. Mm-hmm. And because of the poor connectivity, we couldn't do virtual town halls. A lot of our people you know, don't even have landlines when it gets right down to it. So the, the way we conduct our business is through general meetings and we get the guidance of the membership from there we we tell them all the things that are going on in in all eight communities and then after you've polled your members like the councils ask the the membership there whether they're supportive or non-supportive we then take that information forward and in the end you have a plebiscite or, or a referendum none of that transpired the minister sat there and said he knows what's best or the members of the eight Métis settlements. I, I asked him, I said, if you're so confident in this, just then, you know, let's have a referendum on it. And he, he wouldn't do it. Um, question here. I imagine taking them to court, filing a claim like this is sort of a last resort. How many discussions have been had, and has there been any progress in resolving this without having to take legal action? No, actually, we're, we're disappointed that we have to go to this extent. It, it, we have a 100-year a, a history of working with Alberta, not, you know, not having to go to court all the time. And yes, we've had our disagreements, but we've always been able to work things out. So uh, we've had many meetings as the All-Council. Um, and of course, there's there's members, uh, whether they're members of, of the councils or, or individual members who were supportive of this. I mean, like it, it's it's like anything. You you're going to have you know some that are supportive and some that aren't. I mean, that's democracy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But true democracy is allowing us to vote on these same kinds of things. To, and you know, when I look at consultation, and that's where the real issue comes in shape is, you know, we, you have to have full and prior and informed consent when it comes to consultation. Full, prior, informed consent. It's not up to the minister to say that, he, that we're fully informed and that he's get, done everything that is required. That's up to us to say, yes, we've been fully informed, we understand this, and now we're going to take it to a vote and make a decision on it. He is completely ignoring the political will of the majority of the eight settlements and and going and listening to alleged uh, complaints from some members. I mean, I don't care what government you are, whether you're municipal government, local government, you're not going to satisfy 100% of the people. True, you have true. to work on satisfying the majority. And when there's those who complain and have the issue, what is the critical mass that's required in order to be able to change the legislation on people. Um, so where do we go from here? The action has been filed. I imagine, like you said, that's sort of a last resort. Is there a possibility things could be negotiated before it ends up in court? What kind of timeline are we looking at here? Well, I'm assuming that this is going to be a, a three, five-year right. you know, yeah, court absolutely. case. But, but at the same time, we've all, we're also going in the process of applying for a state so that the legislation, that we can put a hold on it mm-hmm. until the court's 
decide whether it's a, in fact breach of consultation, breach of our Section 35 rights as poly compliant Métis in the province of Alberta. Okay, well we will uh, we'll continue to chat and uh, make sure we keep this story updated. Appreciate your time today. Thank you very much, Shay. You have a great day, and thank you for the opportunity. Yeah, you bet. Thank you very much. That is Herb Lair, who is, uh, as you heard, uh, now involved in this action against the province. He is uh, president of the Métis Settlements of Alberta. All right, we're going to have a conversation here about something that uh, we'll see. We'll see if this affects the plans to get the border reopened. Uh, We've talked about it a couple times on the show um, border workers in our country have voted to strike as early as August 6th. Remember, the border is supposed to reopen August 9th to American travelers. So let's get some details on exactly what the situation is here. We have Rick Savage joining us now. Rick is the Customs and Immigration Union First National Vice President. Uh, Rick, thanks for your time today. Appreciate it. Oh, no problem. Thanks for having me. So just the current situation we're in, you guys put it to the membership for a strike vote, and they have approved strike action August 6th. Do I have that right? Uh, yes, we had the uh, the strike vote had been going on for the last month and a half, and we finalized it just a few days ago with a strong mandate to uh, to strike if need be. Okay, um, what are the issues? What are the problems here? Um, you guys have been without a contract for three years, right? This has been going on for a while. <laughs> yes, this is not something new. It's uh, the government has uh, not really been uh, forthcoming with our negotiations for the last three years. So we brought it down to there's basically three areas uh, where we're having kind of the sticking points. One is uh, we're looking for wage parity with the general, with the general law enforcement community. Uh, two, and this one is, is, is actually much more important to me than, it, than, than even the wage, which is we're looking for better protections from our members from the toxic workplace and the harassment that we face uh, from our management at the CBSA. And the final one is, 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 a, is a surprising one to me because we're, we're also looking to enshrine in our contract protections for people, or not protections, for people to be able to work from home and as we've all seen for the last year and a half um it, it's uh it's possible and it's productive that obviously is not for our frontline workers sure, right those would be, those would be for the, the workers that could uh work from home so those are the kind of the three main sticking points that we're having with the employer right now how far is the gap like when you talk about wage parity with other law enforcement officials how big of a difference are we looking at making up here uh, it's not that. It's not that. That uh, the numbers. Uh, I don't have the numbers in my in front of me at the moment. Uh, it's not that big of a gap at the moment. We did increase significantly in our last contract, but we are all we are always looking to, uh, to to be on the average of what law enforcement members are paid across Canada. Um, when we take a look at the other issue, you know, harassment from people within the uh, the forces. It, how does that work with? The employer. I mean, what what are you asking them to do in terms of putting in a framework, putting in a reporting system, being harder on the perpetrators? What are you looking for exactly? We're actually just looking for protections within our contract. If you look at our contract, harassment is not even mentioned. It is specific to only to sexual harassment. So for okay. workplace violence or bullies or anything like that, that is not in our contract. So we're looking for better language to within the contract to enshrine it within the, for our members. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, what's the status of negotiations? Are there any planned between now and next Friday? We are actually back at the table uh, as of yesterday, okay. and negotiations are ongoing today, and I believe they will be ongoing as well. I don't know if we're going through the weekend or if we're going back on the 3rd, but I do know that we're back at the table now. Okay. In terms of the strike action on the 6th, is that happening, or is that threatened if 
negotiations don't go well between now and then? Is it a set date that this is going to happen or you're just allowed to do it on that time? That is the time that we will be allowed to do any sort of job action. So it's not necessarily going to be a general strike. There's a lot of things that we can do uh, with with our strike mandate. Uh, For example, the collection of duties and taxes has not been deemed to be an essential portion of our job, so that we would not be assessing or collecting duties and taxes in the commercial mode. That you could end up costing, I think the last figure I saw was $87 million a day for the government. So so there's issues that we can do without actually doing a general strike. Um, Obviously, the impact would be huge if you decided to walk out on the 6th with... um vaccinated Americans allowed to cross the border starting August 9th, right? That would be a, a huge issue. It would be, uh, it, yes. However, you do have to keep in mind that our members are, we do have essentials. We are essential workers. So even in a general strike, the borders would not be closed. Right, yeah. It would just be facing more delays. Yes. Exactly. That's the whole thing. The whole system would be delayed in, 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 uh, in effort. Okay. Rick, yes. I appreciate the insight. Thank you very much. No problem. Thanks for having me. You bet. That is Rick Savage. Anyway who is the Customs and Immigration Union first national vice president. So you got three issues they want to deal with there. They want wage parity, and they want some protection in the language in terms of harassment in the workplace. We're going to have a conversation about a big concern in Canada's business community. Now, when Donald Trump was in the White House, trade issues were plentiful. You'll remember, right? We had tariffs, NAFTA was torn up and redone, a lot of protectionism, all of it causing great angst in Canada. We had many battles. Um, A lot of people thought much of that would be eased when Joe Biden was in charge, but not so fast. That American protectionism is still there. It's not gone away. In fact, It's even ramping up in some cases. So let's get some insight as to what's happening with Mark Agnew, who is the Vice President of Policy at the Canadian Chamber of Commerce. Mark, thanks for your time today. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I think, you know, a a lot of people might be surprised to hear that that protectionism is actually probably even more intense, especially around the infrastructure bill uh, under Joe Biden, right? Absolutely. Protectionism is alive and well, and um, by America and its cousin by American, which um, for those viewers who aren't uh, sort of following these things in the minutiae day in, day out, are actually two separate uh, pieces of legislation in the United States. Um, I mean, these have been around for decades, and it's been an ongoing pressure that you know companies have faced uh, in Canada trying to access the U.S. procurement market. Not a great situation, uh, even at the best of times, and certainly the rules are getting uh, tighter, it seems, with each passing president. And right now, we're talking about a tremendous amount of money with the infrastructure bill, right? And there's a lot of very clear language within that bill saying it has to be American companies that are the recipients of this. I mean, it's really exclusionary. Yeah, and certainly when President Biden was uh, campaigning last year for the White House, um, his economic plan was called the Made in America plan. And I think at that very early stage, it indicated the direction that he saw his economic policies going. And we're seeing now the manifestation of that with him in office and types of policies that he's announcing even this week with raising content requirements if the federal government in the U.S. is making purchases or even forcing U.S. companies to have disclosures around how their supply chains work and their presence of foreign inputs in those supply chains. Um, So all told, not exactly a a great story for Canadian companies looking to be able to access the uh, U.S. procurement market. Now, like you say, uh, the protectionism and the America First policy has been around for a while. And in the past, Canada has managed to get around it, right? Under the uh, Obama administration, I think it was, with this kind of spending bills and stuff like that, Canada was given an exemption, right? Yes. 
So in 2008-2009, when we um, had the financial crisis, again, major stimulus packages that went to Congress, and there was the Buy America provision in there, and that led to a negotiation between the two countries um, that had us getting some carve-outs from it. The challenge we have, of course, is that we've just gone through three years to renegotiate the NAFTA, and certainly um, no one that I've talked to, either in Canada or the United States, wants to reopen that agreement and go through another bruising negotiation, especially when time is of the essence. What we've been telling people uh, in government, in our own government and in the United States, is understanding the value of what Canada brings to the United States and how actually by implementing protectionist policies, it actually goes against U.S. self-interest. Us trying to appeal to some kind of altruism or, um, you know, the notion of a special relationship just doesn't really land in Washington, whereas you said it's still America first. Um, now, a couple of things there. Uh, first of all, the NAFTA, the renegotiation, I mean, in a sense, is this not what NAFTA is meant to protect against? Are there remedies available to Canada to try and get some of the language removed and to get those carve-outs and those exemptions? Is there any international laws here that can be applied? Um, so what happened when we renegotiated the NAFTA was that um, their procurement provisions, and so this is what sort of sets the constraints on government to be able to discriminate against foreign companies bidding on contracts. Those procurement provisions were actually removed uh, from the NAFTA when it was renegotiated. What we instead have um, between the United States and Canada in terms of international trade rules on government contracting actually sets up the World Trade Organization. Now, that you know provides us some degree of protection, but by no means does it provide us a blanket exemption from any kind of Buy American uh, provisions being applied against Canadian companies. Uh, so it still has to be negotiated at some level then? Yeah, I mean, procurement in the context of uh, international trade is a hideously complex area. Yeah. And I say this as someone who's been spending years doing trade issues. You know, there, there's, you know, pages and pages and pages of annexes and listing types of procurement and, you know, who is doing the procuring and what are the rules and what are the thresholds. Um, it's not easy for the person on the street to be able to understand. What I can say, though, is that Regardless of, you know, the minutia and the details, the U.S. is going to do what's in the U.S.'s self-interest. And what we need to do is underscore the point for what we're offering as, you know, Canadian businesses and Canadian suppliers is actually helping the U.S. attain its own self-interest, given the disparity in the relationship between the two countries. And, you know, and it's not even in terms of, like, understanding, you know, the, the Americans recognize that they can't do everything locally, but there's a large limits on what they can bring in from other places, and they have to prove that they can't source it within the United States. So even being part of the supply chain to take part in some of these infrastructure projects is going to be very difficult for Canadian companies and a tremendous increase in red tape to even enter into the process, right? Absolutely. And there's going to be, I think, a chilling effect that we might see for Canadian companies that are looking to access um, U.S. procurement contracts through an indirect route. And what I mean by indirect route is if the United States government says we want to buy, you know, a car, um, they're going to have, you know, an American company that might be the final manufacturer. But that car is going to have a lot of inputs and components. And a lot of those parts may be coming from Canada. Now, what we want to make sure, though, is that that American company is not going to turn off the tap to their Canadian suppliers who then are going to say, well, you know, I, I can't risk having a Canadian supplier in here because that might inhibit my ability to then get that contract with Uncle Sam. Now, you're raising the alarm. A number of businesses have and said, hey, this is going to be a problem and we're going to miss out on some things here. Is the government involved? Are any of those negotiations taking place that you know of? 
Yeah, so our government has been active, and I do want to you know give them credit for being quite both on the file. And I know they've been engaging with the, the White House, they've been engaging with senators, uh, you know, people in the U.S. House of Representatives. Um, but you know, American politics, you know, is a fairly difficult thing, uh, even at the best of times. And this is why, again, you know, to go back to this point on when we're going in, we can't appeal to sort of you know U.S. altruism. We have to appeal to what we're offering helping the U.S. achieve its own self-interest. All right. So are you optimistic that there could be some change here, or is this the reality we're going to have to deal with? Well, I think we might be able to see some changes this time around okay. um, and you know, see some form of carbots for Canada. However, that doesn't mean that we're never going to have to deal with this issue uh, ever again in the future. I think the fact that we're dealing with this today uh, is just an indication that we're still going to have to dealing with it in the years to come, whether it's under this president or a future president. Right. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Interesting stuff. Thanks very much, Mark. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. You bet. Uh, that's Mark Agnew, who is... Um, Vice President of Policy at the Canadian Chamber of Commerce. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favourite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.